Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest U.S. regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. My God, Wade, welcome to the What Is Money show. Thanks for having me, Robert. I'm glad to be here. So great to have you. Uh, just by way of quick introduction for the audience, you are the CEO and founder of Skin is Skin. And you're also the director of the Center for African Prosperity for the Atlas Network. And I was introduced to your work um, hearing you on the Jordan Peterson podcast, actually. And I thought you just had such a beautiful story of personal experience of having lived through, let's say, less free markets and more free markets. And uh, the way you articulated your experience, I just found to be very compelling and, you know, we see a lot in the West today, uh, people advocating for alternatives to free market capitalism. And I just, you know, I, I'm a very strong proponent of, of free markets. And I think it's the only way human beings can really lift themselves up by their bootstraps, so to speak. And uh, it just seems like maybe this has to do with the prosperity and complacency thing we we're talking about offline, but people reach a certain level of prosperity and they just start to think there's a better way to do things. And they start to saw off the branch on which they rest is, is an analogy I commonly use. So um, that said, I would love for you to just share your personal journey to some extent, you know, where you grew up, how you grew up, how things changed for you. Um, I believe this was in your teenage or, or early adult years. You made a big move to Europe and I'll let you unpack all of that, but um, really just to focus on the transition of lifestyle from moving from one world to another. Yeah, no, for sure. And um, thank you, Robert. And before I start, I would like to um, make the prayer again to um, God, as, as a matter of fact, that uh, I never, but I never become complacent. And um, in a way, by having one foot in the U.S. and the other foot back home in Africa, it's really keeping me very grounded and uh, mm. being able to always um, never lose sight 
of um, what uh, places like this have to offer, what places like my country also has to offer, but also, you know, what might be the difference between the two uh, for people on both sides to, to flourish, right? Mm. So, and then that goes straight to my story in a way. Uh, so for me, I think um, things started to happen, really. It's something major happened when I was um, seven, you know. Basically, when I was... Um, after I was born and my, and my parents have breastfed me for a couple of years, um, you know, in, in Senegal at least, they tend to breastfeed you for at least a good two, four years. And um, after that, then, you know, weaned off, my uh, parents decided to emigrate to Europe for a better life, as, as many Africans do, um, have done before them, continue to do today, to this day. Yeah. I was just on... Um, uh, YouTube earlier, actually, not YouTube, it was on Twitter, I think, and there was this post from a Nigerian friend, um, in, but I don't know this person, but it was a uh, Nigerian people who just arrived in Dubai, literally yesterday, so the, uh, August 31st, 2022, and you should see, it looks like they've been detained, you know, at uh, immigration, mm. and uh, they have taken their passports away from them, and they would not, they just were left in this room to wait to be processed, uh, from the immigration standpoint, and clearly it doesn't look like they had any decision to let them in. They were in Dubai, in this Dubai um, at, the, at the immigration, and um, you can hear this gentleman saying, "This, I mean, this is an infringement on our human rights." And this other woman is like, "I don't want to just be sitting anymore. I don't want to be just sitting anymore." I mean, clearly you could tell, like, just basically. And then the Saudis, the Saudi authorities, just could care less. Look at them and be like, "Please, they would just leave." Just get outside, something like that. And you could see the disdain, the lack of respect, the lack of consideration for their basic humanity. But people put themselves through this, regardless, mm. get to a better life, regardless. And I don't think people understand, people who don't go through this cannot understand. Maybe um, Americans, uh, Americans here, you know, it's your your ancestors from way back when, who probably, the people who were in the Mayfair, um, folks like that, who had to come here under, you know, having to face atrocious journeys oftentimes to get here, but for mm -hmm. they were in search of a better life. So people here have forgotten that, but people like me, we're still going through that. Um, so my parents left to Europe for a better economic life and they left me behind. And at some point, once it became clear that the immigration was successful and that um, things were stable, they called for me to be reunited with them. And at that point, they were in Germany. So I will never forget um, leaving my, my home, my grandma especially, uh, who had raised me all of these years, um, my friends, my village, my, my little street, my little, you know, everything that I've always known um, to be shifted off for the first time away from my, from my village country, let alone from my continent, for the first time in my life. So arrive in um, Germany in the middle of a winter. <laughs> I mean, the shock, I think the physical shock was just in line with the emotional shock, <laughs> with the intellectual shock. I was just like being zapped from everywhere you could think of it, right? And how old were you at this time? <laughs> I was around seven, right? Seven, around okay. Seven. So here I am and I look around and I'm thinking to myself, you gotta be kidding me. I said, like, how come they have this? And we don't. And the, this that my little girl's brain was talking about was simply about, wow, how come they have these paved roads back home? We don't. I have to 
you know, go through these sandy roads that always leave my feet ashy. I have all of this work to do when I come back home, washing off. So I'm there and I'm like, how come they have all of this? These paved roads, um, back home is sandy roads. I'm always in my feet ashy, having to shower when I, to um, wash my feet when I get back home, all of that. And, but most importantly, this, 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 this episode of um, having to take a shower, right? You take a shower every day. Back home, we take uh, easily two showers a day because you know how hot can, things can get. But anyway, here I am and my mom is saying, oh, my God, it's time for your shower. And I'm looking around and I'm like, um, I don't see any bucket with warm water in it in this cold weather. I don't think so. And, but what you have to understand is for me, my point of reference was, you know, in, that, in those days, back home in Senegal with my grandma, time to bathe means what? She has to put some water in a, in a pot and then um, prepare the stove, charcoal stove. We're talking about this tiny little, you know, stove that you take camping where you put the charcoal in and then you have to get it going and then you can put your little pot on top. So wow. all of that work, you know, it takes time for that coal to catch on. So put that, put the pot on it, then the water boils, then she takes it, takes a big bucket, dumps it in, takes some colder water, mix it all up. Now I have nice temperature uh, bath water to bathe with. And then um, somebody in the family uh, stronger than her because it's grandma has to come and pick up this big bucket, drag it or carry it in the head and take it to the shower. There with a, with a smaller pot, I finally can get on with my shower. The whole thing must have taken probably a half an hour to be ready for. Wow. Here, my mom is like, jump in the shower. I'm like, what? Where's the bucket? She's like, no, you, you silly, jump in the shower. All I had to do, half a second, jump in the shower, turn the knobs, water's coming down. I'm playing with the temperature the way I want. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> and, you know, and never having to deal with power outages. Back home, oftentimes the power could go sometimes out for 12 hours at a time. 12 hours. You always, you know, and then you're crawling in the dark trying to find them you know, the, 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 the candle, but it was a good thing that I always knew where grandma was, was having the candles because we, it was just part of life, but it can go out on you anytime. In the middle of eating, the power goes off and you don't know when it's gonna come back, right? And so that's what I grew up like. And so you bring me to this place and then, you know, switch on off, you know, never power hard age. Um, when it's warm outside, they have, you can, you know, the inside the, the temperature can be cooler. When it's cool inside, when it's cooler outside, the temperature can be warmer inside. I'm like, oh my God. So I think all I was talking about as a little girl, how come we have all of this and we don't? I was talking about this ease of life, but I had no idea how it came about, but I'm like, I can see that there's ease of life over here and there's not over there. And it just, because I'm, because it's more, it's very much my nature to, I need to understand everything. And that was so, that question was so profoundly, it just was so profoundly imparted in my being that mm. I had to have an answer for it. I, I had, and my whole life, I have to say, I went searching for that answer. My whole life never left me. And eventually as I grew up, the question became a little bit more sophisticated. It went from how come we don't, they, they have this and we don't, it uh, to become how come some countries like mine are poor while others like the us like great britain you know france are rich and along the way um robert i've i think i've heard all types of nonsense along the way i um i've heard people who um very much with a straight face invoke uh, the iq fury 
according to which black and brown people simply are not as smart as whites. Therefore, the discrepancy um, between, you know, um, countries as primarily inhabited by blacks and browns versus countries primarily inhabited by white people. Mm. Um, I heard people say that, oh, darling, if, uh, you know, it's just because of lack of uh, lack to education, then I tell them, then you go, you go say that to a street seller in Senegal, who where in Senegal, we joke that the first job of a graduate, university graduate, is to be a street seller, because there is nothing else better. So really, you're going to tell this person that how many more PhDs do we need to have <laughs> right um good luck with that and then um you know i heard people talking about access to clean water being the reason why or we just need better health care having access to health care um uh, i would hear all types of things but guess what while of course it is important to have to drink hopefully clean water and not be killed by the bacteria in dirty water um, while it is indeed, um, you know, good, a good idea to have um, nutritious foods, yes, so I give you clean water, I give you nutritious foods, we have plenty of people all over the continent that, that have that, yet they're not going to tell you that they're living, um, they're living well, they're not, you know, they, they haven't even met the, the most of the basic needs in terms of shelter and everything else, so yeah, clean water, great, and then what, so what? So I'm learning that not, none of this is making sense, but unfortunately I see so much of the energy spent on, on these elements and we'll go back to them. But anyway, um, eventually I'm saying to myself, none of this makes any sense. And again, for me, everything, all the conclusions I make in my life, I like to compare, you know, it often does start with my own lived experience. And then from there, I try to, to find out, am I, is that just an anecdote or is it more systemic than that? And so in this case, I was like, I don't understand because if, it, if what you're saying is true, then how come if my parents, the same people, background, everything, it's the same people, they move from one place to another, all of a sudden, voila, the greatest manifestation of a potential. Um, people like them from all over the world, when they leave these poor countries into a rich nation, all of a sudden, they thrive. At first, I'm thinking that this then means that it must not be about the person. When they're saying it's about IQ, this is my proof it's not about IQ, if I needed any more proofs. Uh, when they're saying all of this stuff that they're saying, it doesn't hold up at all. So all of a sudden, I'm starting to think it has to do the difference in um, the potential for someone to manifest their full potential or not. I'm starting to believe might not be so much about what they're saying. It's, it's, it's because I, whatever it's, but it's, I'm starting to think, hmm, same person. What is the variable in this situation? Hmm, it's the place, the place they get to be in, the country they get to be in. So I'm starting to think maybe it has to do with something with the countries they get to be in or not. And so for, from there, I'm, start, I'm, I'm still at that point, then my, 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 um, I thought that it was, okay, yeah, it must do with the place that they're in. And then my um, natural, um, um, what do you call it? I search for my words sometimes because English is not my first language, but you know, my natural, my natural conclusion, yeah, my natural mm. conclusion to that was, well, I guess it's normal because you know, when you're in a poor country, you can't do anything. And when you're in a rich country, you get to do something. 
So I thought that it was just because, yeah, it, it, they're able to, 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 to manifest their full potential because they're in a rich country. And when it, from a poor country, they can't. So that was my answer. Uh-huh. But it was not adding up still because I was just like, so, so that was for the longest time, the little, um, you know, my little answer until a few things started to happen. A few things started to happen. So in the meantime, so here I am in, in Germany. After two years in Germany, family is like, time to move to France. Because, you know, by now my family knows we're staying in Europe. And because of the ties between France and Senegal, you know, like Senegal used to be a colony of France. Um, for so many, many reasons, all the way to French being the official language of Senegal, parents are thinking, let's go to France and uh, we're going to continue over there. I'm like, are you are you kidding me? I just got this sweet, good-looking boyfriend. His name is Johan. You know, no way I'm not leaving him behind. So, but now we're leaving. So, so we left and uh, we went to France. And there, you know, I continued on my path um, for, you know, uh, went to business school in France. And after business school in France, I decided that France was going to be too small for my ambitions. So I decided to go to this one place in the world that I've always dreamed of. Um, and it was called America. Not, I dreamed of it because of all the movies I've seen of America, especially movies that had the Golden Gate Bridge in it. It was so romantic. And at that time, also, people were talking about Silicon Valley. And, you know, it just felt like this place where I just could, as a young person, you just could sense so much freedom coming out of there. You know, uh, you know the, the whole Beverly Hills uh, 2.0 point, whatever that was the number. You 90210. Know, 90210. Yeah. 90210. Yeah, right. You know, things like that. Uh, 21 Jump Street, stuff like that. It was just like so cool, especially the life of young people in this country. It sounded so cool. So I was attracted to that at first, you know, to this fierce sense of freedom. And on top of that, you know, like everything in America just felt so much more successful, felt so much more bigger. So from, you know, everything, I was so attracted to it. And most importantly, I loved this idea of the American dream that, you know, I could mm. just, we were being told about and we could see in the movies, everything. And at that time, because I was having my own issues with my own parents and everything and life in general, I was just like, this is time, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna make the leap. And I was very fortunate that in the last year of business school, I had done an internship, uh, an exchange program with a family in Columbus, Indiana. I always wanna say their name, uh, Carol and Eldon Wentz out of Columbus, Indiana. <laughs> and when I arrived, I mean, when I did my exchange with them, they said, my God, whenever you're done with school and you want to come to the U.S., we will welcome you with open arms. These are people in the Midwest, in towns that people would laugh, saying there are more cows and churches than people. But <laughs> these were my people. They totally took great care of me. We did not have the same skin color. We did not have the same religion or anything like that. But oh boy, did they make me feel like I was the most precious human being on this earth. So that's why to this day, I have absolutely no patience for folks, again, in this country, ever daring to make fun of what they call, you know, mid-America. Mid, mid, mid it's just, um, and all the, the, they just don't know who these people are, <laughs> you know. So I, I got to live on the coastal, you know, on the two coastal elites later on, San Francisco, then, you know, New York, and now I'm in Austin. I would like to argue that probably by now, those are the free elite parts of the country, probably. Mm-hmm. And so everything that, uh, all the stereotypes that folks like to have about middle America, I'm here to say that uh, if some of those might be true, the opposite is also true. Therefore, 
maybe we should not go for stereotypes and just take it one 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 person at a time right mm. so anyway um i got to america and after nine months working with them they said to me um carol said to me you know there's there is a bigger life for you there's something much bigger for you you do but the potential you have is humongous and as a small business family there is no way um, we could match up your potential. Now we can be selfish and keep you with us forever, but we think you've got a much bigger, much bigger, uh, you know, future. So with that in mind, and the fact that um, I had just gotten engaged to my French boyfriend, who, um, you know, but they were not feeling him. They were just like, hmm, this guy is really not for you. Instead, you always talk about this other gentleman, you know, this other French guy who, with whom I went to school with, but he was much older than me. So he graduated before me and came to the US before me. But we stayed in touch together. And Carol was like, I just, do me a favor, please. Do me a favor, do yourself a favor. Uh, you know, I don't like this other gentleman at all, but if marrying him is what you want, we will stand by you. I, I, we, won't, we don't support it, but we will stand by you. Um, but then she said, go and see what is going on. What's up with this Emmanuel guy? And so I went to San Francisco. I went for the weekend. And as they said, I left my heart in San Francisco. So <laughs> back, came back, I quit and I'm like, I'm done. So um, Carol was so happy. I think she knew I was making the right decision. Eldon, everybody, the family, the children, the, the, the children, everybody was so excited for me. So she sent me off on the plane with this letter that she said, only open in the plane. And I opened it in the plane. And it was a letter of, um, yeah, she was just uh, telling me how courageous and how I was doing things that only a few of us had you know, the courage to do, to always uproot yourself and follow your heart and follow your mind and, 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 and go for what it is that you, what you want to do in life. And I kept that letter forever. And in one of my moves, I lost it. But it's funny because when I once when I lost that letter is also when I felt like maybe I was I finally had integrated what she had said, and anyway, so I came to California, and um, yeah, there I have taken this ultimate risk because I was on an H one B visa. Uh, when you are H one B, where you are on an H one B visa, if you switch to another company, you have to start the whole process whole all over. It's very risky. Um, the the quotas were already reached. All of that was a complete nightmare, but. I got, and most people, most companies did not want to hire you, especially if you're not in tech uh, with an H-1B visa. But after my first weekend in California, I had a few of those offers with an H-1B sponsorship. Um, it was amazing. Emmanuel and I, we felt like, you know, we're going to, yeah. So anyway, we got together and, um, you know, married. And I was doing extremely well for myself, extremely well. Manu was doing very well as well. We were just, you know, I remember making the six figures very early on in my early 20s, you know, and that was back in the days. Today, the six figures very easy, you know, of course, some people it's easy to make, but back then it was not so easy. So anyway, doing so well, but, um, but one day it hit me. It hit me, it hit me as I was driving down Big Sur, you know, um, and uh, as I usually do in times like that, I would say is always listening to my um, to this music from Yusundur, whom I uh, I just love his music and just feeling so proud of myself and feeling so gratified and feeling so vindicated um, for the decisions I've made to always follow my heart and to work hard and to give it everything that I had and all of this all of this was there to, to you know for me to be a you know 
the, the fruits of my efforts were there. I had this wonderful mm -hmm. husband that I loved more than anything else in the world. I, you know, we just bought this house in one of the most expensive zip codes in the country with a swimming pool and everything. Um, I had this job that I absolutely loved uh, where I felt like I was making a, a difference in people's lives, you know, as a headhunter in finance. Um, I was, you know, I was, I was basically living the dream. Um, and it was, it just felt so, so, so nice. It felt so warm but as the sun that was coming through my sunroof. But at some point, um, just like it happens all the time when I, when I was in that mood, all of a sudden things would turn dark. It's almost like somebody put switch on off. Huh. One minute, you're super happy, so proud of yourself. And then from there, you can't, because from there, what happened, what would happen is I could never, whenever I started being happy, excited for myself, and I could never stop. But then my next thoughts would be like, to those back home. And then you're thinking about those back home. And then, of course, as you think about it, and also you think about the latest story, a boat tipped over somewhere in the ocean, trying to make it to Europe, with people like probably my parents, except my parents didn't have to immigrate like that. They immigrated the, 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 the legal way, so the safe way. But you know, you have in those boats people like them when they were when they had me, you know, but as young as they were when they had me, people full of hopes, um, people who were just willing and ready to roll up their sleeves and work hard, uh, people who maybe got on that boat with a two-year-old baby like I was, or maybe have left the two-year-old baby like I was back home, like they did in their case, right? But then the boat doesn't make it. And um because it's made, it's a fish, small fisherman's boat. It's not designed to go to high sea and big, you know, wave or whatever and hits it. And, you know, imagine the chaos in, in boats like that, you know, and people, in, I, I, I can't help, but imagine their angst. And the fact is when you look at the ones who made it from the rescue, you see their faces, you how they are, um, so yeah, so imagine boats like that going down all the time, being tipped over all the time. Sometimes they can save a few people, sometimes they can't. Uh, but at the bottom, at the end of the day, today, bottom of the ocean, at the bottom of the ocean serving as fish food, and I'm, I'm sitting here and thinking, you, you mean this is the best my people can be? Or, you know, so just tragedies of that kind, tragedies of that kind, and then people think it's over. No, it's not over. Or today, you're crossing, you know, so people say, oh, gee, it's kind of dangerous to go through, um, you know, for boats. So uh, let's go from, uh, from landlines. And so there, usually the route takes them through Libya, right? And guess what happens to them in, in Libya, Robert? They get sold, someone like me gets sold for between $300 and $500 on open slave markets. Literally, you heard me right. Oh, wow. And they did not know this was happening until CNN, or was it the BBC? One of them, I think it was CNN, did a piece on it. That's when they finally, um, that took it to the rest of the world to know this was still happening. Because before then, it was just me, other fellow Africans. Sometimes you get a WhatsApp, you know, um, email or uh, text uh, asking us to pull money together to free somebody up. Wow. And so this stuff is happening right now. Why is it happening? People are dying at sea. People are being enslaved in Libya in 2022 today. And um, it's all happening. Why? Because these are people. Their only crime is to go and search for better horizons.
something that your ancestors, if you're an American in America today, your ancestors have done the same thing. And for that, they die. Sometimes in the most abject conditions. For that, they are enslaved. I don't think any normally constituted person could live with that in their conscience. conscience. And so that's what would happen to me every time I start being happy, then my mind goes to people. <laughs> and that day something special happened though. Because usually it's there, the sadness, and then the despair, because you don't know why it's happening. Why, God, why are we just cursed? Could it be true that maybe us black people are cursed? Why? And what you do, coping mechanism, I shove it under the rug. You know, usually I would just shove it under the rug. You know what? It's not my fault. Um, I, I don't know what to do. If I knew what to do, I would do something. Uh, in my case, I was sending money home, you know, to help all the time with, um, you know, like we, so many of us do. But beyond that, I didn't know much, much, what else I could do. So um, there, what, um, so I continued with, but that day, like I said, something special happened. And what was special about that day is that uh, my coping mechanism was not working. Something was not allowing me to just push it under the rug. And it manifested in a very violent, um, I don't know what happened, but um, it, whatever it was, was strong enough that it made my whole body kind of jerk and um i'll never forget it was very scary because um it was just something you know like it's so violent that you know it makes you like you know my, the wheel of the car I, I mean the steering wheel i was just like i almost made it i almost fell down um down below on the cliff down in the water but of course that did not happen because i'm still here talking to you mm-hmm. so um so at that point what happened is as soon as I could stop the car, I stopped the car. To this day, I don't know what happened. I think God had a hand in it. But I stopped the car and I got out. And um, I made a deal. I made a deal with my beloved, my beloved God. And I said, um, I think um, I, I surrender. And, um, but you have to show me the way because I clearly... I really don't know what to do, mm-hmm. but I want to do something. And I promise you that from here on, every breath that I take, I want it to go towards making Africa better. I don't know how, but if you will help me with that, with guidance, I, I, I will, sh- I show up from here on. No more fooling around, no more messing around. I'm, I'm here. And I have to say everything changed from there, everything. I went home to Senegal um, at, um, a few months after that to show my husband my, you know, where I came from. And of course he's talking about this uh, you know, hibiscus drink that I've been telling him about the whole time. So what you have to know is that the people of Senegal are known uh, for Taranga. Taranga means hospitality. Um, and hospitality is what us the people, of, uh, the people of Senegal are known for. And we have even a juice, a national juice that, imp- that personifies that, you know, trait of national character around hospitality. And it's called the Bisap. The Bisap is the, 
uh, it's the hibiscus drink. Um, I know that in Mexico they have it as uh, Jamaica de Flores. Um, of course, I don't, you know, I don't speak Spanish, but I know they call it Jamaica. And um, so anyway, but this in Senegal, it personifies our taranga. It's the juice of taranga. It is so important. Uh, when you come to a home, but what you get greeted with, um, it just, it just, it just our pride. So I take a manual there, and people who listen today in 2022 have to remember that this was in 2020, in 2003, we're talking about at this point, and things were not the way they are today. Since then, there has been like a rebirth, a rebirth in African pride, you know, Afro, Afro optimism and all of that stuff. But back then when I was doing this, I was one of the first, in terms of entrepreneurship and all of that, Africans who were like, you know, I was part of a, of a cohort of Afro-optimists, people who would say, yes, we believe that an African brand can win. And all my friends, African friends, were making fun of me, especially the elite ones, the elite educated ones, you know, Harvard, um, Yale, all of these Ivy Leagues, the ones coming out of there, for them, um, the, the success would be like, okay, I'm going to be out of here and then I'm going to go work for McKinsey. I'm going to go work for, uh, you know, um, Goldman Sachs or be an IB or whatever it was. And, but for me, I was like, no, we have to, some, you know, so I started this, people laughed at me for a long time and I'm like, laugh all you want. We'll see who's going to laugh all the way to the bank. But um, anyway, I started, um, I went to, when we were there, I could see that uh, this hibiscus was no longer there. And most importantly, uh, you know, so back then it, you still had this whole, what I could only call the complex of interiority, this idea that, um, that indigenous people, I think, have oftentimes, right? Um, like whatever is indigenous to us is not so good. It's all about the modern world and what's modern and what's, um, you know, that, what's cool. That's what's cool. And so in the process, what happens is uh, our indigenous drink just goes away. And so in this case, it meant that the hibiscus was, um, losing in popularity and it meant that uh, so because at the at the, at the elite level the top of the pyramid you had uh, people felt like you had to drink coca-cola pepsi fanta you know soda pops like that and at the bottom of the pyramid people were busy drinking knockoff brands of those western brands <laughs> in the mm -hmm. middle uh, my beloved um, hibiscus juice would be squeezed out but that being squeezed out meant two things number one is I told you that hibiscus is a part of our national identity. So right there, you're touching on even me, culturally speaking, and what I might mean to the world. So a part of my identity was disappearing in my culture. And at the same time, the hibiscus not being so popular anymore, it means that the people, and in, case, in this case happen to be primarily women, they're the ones who grow the hibiscus. It means that they're losing their livelihoods. No, people don't want hibiscus anymore. Why would they grow it? If they can't grow this and they can't grow something else, what are they gonna do? So they're losing their livelihoods left and right. Leaving the countryside for the cities and there, you know, maybe becoming maids and being treated like crap very often times, you know, or, you know, begging on the street, the kid next to you, some of them, you know, people getting in prostitution. I mean, it's just like, it's even, the poverty cycle is getting even worse. Meanwhile, some other people are buying their land for almost close to nothing back home. So now it, you, you can see, so that got me. So we got to Senegal and I'm seeing that um, instead of being greeted with this hibiscus, it's everywhere we go, people bring these nice trays with Coca-Cola, Fanta, Pepsi on it. 
and you ask for the hibiscus and they're like, where have you been, girl? And I'm like, what do you mean? Right. It's, so this whole thing of if you are anything, if you've made it, you show your status by drinking this Western soda pop brands. Mm. Poison. Right? Poison. And exactly when you say poison, because I found it so interesting that while Coca-Cola, in ba those, back in those days, they were losing um, market share in the Western world, because the Western world was waking up to how bad those products were. But at the same time as they were losing uh, market share in the Western world, they were getting market shares in the poor world, in the, you know? Right. And but this goes straight with what I explained to you. It's um, this complex of inferiority that I have found in so many places that um, today count among poor nations. Um, somehow we have this complex of inferiority about what comes from the West. So I got so pissed when I saw that and everything that it meant and all the ramifications of this juice not being on the tray that they brought to me. And like I told Jordan, for the longest time for me, when I saw that, the first thing that popped in my mind is, we are about to go extinct. Hmm. Because to me, that tray meant the world. The juices on it meant the cultures that would get to stay. The cultures and behind those cultures, the people who represented the cultures who would get to thrive and to stay and just keep on advancing while the rest of us were being left behind, mm. eventually to die out, eventually to disappear. So on one end, I had my culture dying. <laughs> and on another end, I had people dying because no livelihoods. Mm. At that point, I'm thinking, hmm, I was pretty much shut down for three, for like three days. Three days, my body was refusing to function. I was just laying down. I was consumed with anger. I was consumed with despair. I was um, consumed with, you know, like sadness. It was a whole nine yards. And because I'm a very passionate person, you know, I never, I'm trying to practice uh, equanimity, but it's a very hard one for me to do so. I'm gonna have many, many more days of vipassana to do, probably many more years of vipassana to do, you know, meditation, but um, I'm, getting, I'm, I'm making some progress, but mm. So at that point, I, um, at some point my husband said, he said, my God, this anger of yours, it's, it's energy, but it's a negative energy, it's negative, anger is negative. And he said, you've got to find a way to turn this into a positive energy when it becomes inspiration and then you use that to fuel you. And when he said that, I was like, whoa, it kind of resonated with me. Because when he said that, it went back to some, uh, some, of the, some of the philosophies by which I have been raised also as a child, which is this concept of criticized by creating. It's a Michelangelo's term, but I was very much raised along those lines of um, the only valid form of criticism is by offering an alternative. And mm. that alternative doesn't have to be right. But it's just like when you are in a solutions mode, you're in a very different mindset. And it is only from that mindset that a viable solution can be born, right? Mm. And um, it's um, so at that point, I think that was it. I, I figured to myself, you know what? I'm going to start a company. The product of it's going to be this beverage. I'm going to bring it back to the world. 
And um, in doing so, I bring the, I put back to work women. And so my plan was, I'm gonna revive my, this part of my culture. And the only way to, to um, make sure that something um, survives and thrives is to make sure it expands. So in this case, I had to take this to the rest of the world. And if my own people were too stupid or too um, lacking so much confidence that they could not you know, figure out for themselves that this is good, I don't care what other people think, this is a good juice, it deserves to be taken out to the world, I was gonna do it. And if they were not gonna be my first adopters, fine, I'm gonna do reverse communalism on them. I'm gonna to go to the West, the West that they look up so much to, and I'm gonna get those guys to accept this. And then they'll be like, oh my God, we're hearing that in, um, in, uh, in, uh, in America, this is what they're drinking. So oh, yeah, it must be so good, let's, let's do it. And they, you know, on them, I would have to do that. But by the time the second generation comes, them, they would not have to do it this way. But because what would happen by then is for them, they were born in excellence. They were born in a world where it is totally possible for an African brand to succeed in the world. No need for it to have to go all the way to Europe or the US and back home, right? That was the plan. Whatever it takes, I'm like, this, we're gonna do that. So, um, so pretty much that's um, what we did. And so we came back and we, um, at some point the UNDP um, did a um, case study on us on the company and how we did it. And uh, back then I think we had uh, 4,000 women um, you know, um, back to work and it eventually went all the way down to all the way to 9,000. But uh, yeah, so they were talking about how you know, we, we did this, but we did it. So to me, it was just like, um, it was just like, yeah, if there is a problem, it's okay, I guess, at, at first to be a little bit depressed or whatever, but please don't stay in that state of depression. Don't stay in that state of despair. Try to think, criticize by creating. Think pretty about creating. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so we did that. But you know, Robert, when I did that, my, something were ha starting to happen about my question. Remember that question? How come some countries are rich and others are poor? Mm -hmm. When I started that business, we had to have two sister companies. One in the U.S. handling primarily sales and um, sales and promotions, uh, R&D, as well as distribution, all of that good stuff, marketing, and then we had to have a um, sister company back in back home in Africa that was primarily that one in charge of doing um, what do you call it, in charge of uh, doing um, um, you know the supply chain, building the supply chain, like mm. all of these women back to work for them to do the hibiscus, and um, right there. I was starting to see some very, very serious discrepancies. Because in this one country, you could start um, a legal business in so fast. Online, you could register Secretary of State's website, you know, do what you need to do, or very quickly fill out some paperwork, put it in an envelope, send it, and then it comes back with the signatures from the sec Secretary of State, all the things you need. Go bank, open your bank account very quickly. You don't need more than 20 bucks probably to do the whole thing. Voila, you're done in less than half, you know, the whole thing is done. Back then, compared that to back in those days, because sometimes we're like, oh, it's not so bad anymore in Senegal. What are you talking about? Well, back in those days, it could take you easily up to two years to legally register your business and up to a year's worth of your salary of somebody's income in terms of fees and everything else um, to register that business legally and to open a bank account, you needed a few thousand dollars. So please give me a break. So I noticed that I'm like, but even then, I saw these discrepancies. I'm like, oh, well, I guess it's so messed up because this is a poor country. And here it's working better because it's a rich country. My mind was still thinking that way, you see? We're still thinking mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I keep on going and noticing all of these discrepancies. 
right? And then um, eventually, at some point, uh, I am starting, um, you know, the company's at a point where now we want to start a uh, nonprofit, um, you know, to go with a for-profit. And my, the only thing I wanted for the for-profit, for the nonprofit, was to basically try and help as many African women, especially African women, to do exactly what I was able to do. I wanted to help as many of these African women who wanted to uh, create a consumer brand because I really believe in the power of consumer brand. I believe that consumer brands really get to establish what school and culture or not. They get to go even beyond that. They get to decide which culture will be respected or not. When you look at the top 1,000 brands of the top, when you look at the one top 1,000 brands of the world back then, um, you, you could bury, there is no African brand in there. You would have to go to the number 1000 to find the first African brand, so-called African brand, which was South, Af South um, African Airways. In my mind, hardly a South, an African brand, given that it was created under apartheid. But you had to go to that low, way down there to find the first African brand. Instead, the top ones, do you know who they were? Dominated, dominated by American brands including Levi's and all that, and then followed very closely by Western brands. We're talking here about BMW, we're talking about Dior, we're talking about Chanel, we're talking, and so what you're finding there too is like, um, what I'm finding too is that especially the um, European brands, a lot of them, except maybe for um, German brands um, and some, uh, you know, Nordic um, um, Scandinavian brands, a lot of the other older Europe brand a lot of them have more to do with, uh, their, at this point, the legacy brands, like, you know, but anyway. So, but what does it mean, Robert? What does it mean? Then you wonder why, when you would travel anywhere around the world, ask a young person, I love young people because to me, they tell me where the world is going. Ask any young person around the world, where do you want to go? And systematically, unless these young people live in America or somewhere in, uh, in Western Europe, number one destination is somewhere in America. Mm -hmm. Number two destination is somewhere in the Western Europe. We're talking about France. We're talking about England. We're talking about places like that. That's where the youth was dreaming to go. You go anywhere in Africa and you ask them, where do they want to go? Especially remember back in those days, that's the answers you would, you would kind of get. And so me, none of this, none of this is innocent. None of this is innocent. It all makes sense. So that's why I have always been into brands because brands have such power such power to influence our culture for good or for bad. And so even, for example, you take one, um, you know, they've been fighting about body positivity for so long. Well, you know, women, we shouldn't all be just like, uh, you know, this whole, uh, this, uh, this, um, this math, you know, this, um, you're forcing all of us to believe that uh, a, a, a good looking woman should be like this size and, you know, you know of, um, of um, the, the fashion industry. Well, all of them were complaining about it. You had some nonprofits complaining about it and trying to coerce people into thinking the right way or doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. I love nothing more than when Rihanna showed up and totally took away, um, you know, the supremacy of uh, Victoria and uh, Victoria's Secret and you know, like this, uh, the angel, um, you know, like uh, runway. And every mm -hmm. time I see women fighting on on social media about why do they have this diktat of what a woman should look like, whatever. And you know, Rihanna showed up and she just did what she did with her brand, you know, and voila. So once again, to me, that's, and that's very libertarian of me, you know, to think this way. So it's like, give people a choice, give them an alternative choice and let the market decide, right? No need to Amen fight. To that. Now I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. 
Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible. And then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. So, so that's what's that. So that's why I started this brand. And then so as we were doing all of this, I'm starting to notice it is so much easier to do business here in America than it is over there in Senegal. And at first it was, I thought it was, oh, maybe just because we're so poor, but everything is so messed up and it's here, they're rich. So everything is following through normally. And I started this foundation. I wanted it to do exactly what I, had, I was able to do. And then hmm, I started to meet interesting people, very interesting people. People who introduced me to concepts that I intuitively see for the longest time, I was to the left of the left. If I told you that I was even dating some uh, commies, you would think that I'm laughing today, but I was not. I was very much in my little bubble, feeling so superior. Um, when um, I got together with my today husband, Michael, a friend of mine called me, it's like, you can date blue shirt. And I said, why? And she had Googled him something I never do when I'm, when I, you know, when I have to date somebody, because I just, I don't want to find out about this person from anybody else's eyes. I'm going to use my own eyes. I'm going to use my own. No, I don't want anybody to, 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 to muddy up the waters. So anyway, but she said blue shirt. And it turns out that she said blue shirt because that day Michael was on Bloomberg um, talking good, good about Walmart, talking about how Walmart really was giving greater purchasing power to the poor, how Walmart really was um, creating uh, to the poor and, and lesser fortunate among us, um, how Walmart actually was really a good stepping point for um, so many people who otherwise, where are they going to find a job? I mean, but the, but, um, the, uh, the, the ratio of application to acceptance uh, for you know, Walmart workers was actually, the ratio was um, way um, lower than, uh, what do you call it, than Harvard, meaning that it was harder to find a job at Walmart than it was to get into Harvard. So that tells you there's a demand. Again, I go, I go back to, mar to the market, right? The market is selling us something very powerful. So who, who are you? 
to say that all of this is wrong? Who are you to say that, that you know, they're not doing something good, right? Mm -hmm. And so because of that, she totally nixed it. She was just like, no way. Uh, uh -uh. So I met, um, so of course, Michael and I connected. And uh, the reason why we started dating is because actually when I started this foundation and I wanted to, for my foundation, I didn't want it to give fish to people. I didn't want it to give grants like, oh, you know, we're going to give you clean water. I think all of that is great. Actually, so many people are doing that and that's fine. I just don't think it's going to, it's the end of all. Um, so when I started on that journey, everybody wanted me to just write checks. And I'm like, I don't want to write checks. I want to understand what helped me do what I did. And I want to replicate that. Mm -hmm. And it's at that time that I connected with this world of people who were talking about something called the free markets. That's when I connected with, uh, that's when I first understood. And then as I started talking to those folks, I started to understand that in a way I was intuitively something. They were using this word and it was called, they were saying this word called libertarian. And for anybody French listening or my fellow African Senegalese friends but might listen to this at some point, I'm gonna say what I always preface with, libertarian, not a libertine. See, that tells you everything you need to know because in the right. French language, <laughs> you know, you say libertarian, they think right away that because libertarian is not, you know. So anyway, um, I, I learned that there was, there was a term for the way I intuitively felt, right? And I learned, and so I started to, wow, all of a sudden I'm like, then it was just all starting to make sense. I was just like, yes, yes, yes. If you make it that it's gonna be so hard for me to start and run a business, of course, many people are not gonna to wanna to run a business. And if we, if you don't have enough people running, a, um, you know, starting a business, it means the jobs that are, you know, that would be created by this don't exist. And if the jobs don't exist, then the income that people could be getting from that is not there. And if people don't have access to an income, then they are, yes, poor. It was just this simple equation, but it was starting to build in my mind. You're poor because you have no money, at least not enough money to take to care for your most basic needs. You don't have enough, you don't have money because you have no uh, source of income. What is a source of income for most of us? It is a job, isn't it? Where do jobs come from? The private sector. And even those who say it comes from the, oh, the government, well, I would like to think that even if you're government, you're going to be paid a salary, right? Where does that right. money come from? And then people are like, stolen oh. from the private sector. <laughs> it's, it's like, exactly. But we take from the employers and the employees, and then we make the machine turn. Wow. I had it upside down the whole time. Of course, it makes sense. It makes so much sense. And I lived it in my bones. I lived it in my, in my, in my journey. So I love, I love hearing about this revelation at the end of such a long tale because I can relate to it deeply. And it's something that's been in my intuition for a long time, right? The importance of freedom, free markets, libertarianism. But we're not equipped, as you said, as we said offline, the education system does not equip you to put, to articulate that properly, right? You have this, this vague, dim apprehension about what works, but we don't receive adequate tooling to explain it until you discover, right? Like you, by happen chance, discovered 
libertarian philosophy or, you know, advocates for free markets, Austrian economics, all of these things, none of which are taught in any mainstream curriculum whatsoever. And you can't, that can't not be by design. How could it not be? How, why would it not be part of curriculum? At least part, like the, the, the fact that mainstream curriculum is totally silent on it is, is very telling, right? It it speaks volumes. It is. is. And it is that simple, right? Leave people alone and they will self-organize and be productive and trade with one another. And that's, that's the source of wealth. It, It totally is. But you know, then we wonder why, why, when you say it's by design, of course, I'm tempted to think it's by design. Was it always exactly by design? Maybe not. And where I'm going to go with that is this. Because once I discovered this, and um, and I discovered that my experience was not just an anecdote, that there's actually, this is very well documented, but doing business index ranking of the World Bank, which measures how hard or easy it is to start a business anywhere in the world, systematically puts most Africa, shows us that most African nations, sub-Saharan African nations, except maybe for five of them, are um, at the bottom of the list. Um, the Fraser Institute one, same thing, economic, in the economic freedom index, same thing, shows the same thing from the heritage, from the heritage, same thing. So all of these indexes, economic indexes, one after one, are basically showcasing exactly what I have gone through. I can put examples behind the numbers that they came up with to show this fact. And so at the end of the day, countries like mine are poor. The reason why Africa is the poorest region in the world despite having some of the greatest riches in the world, chief of them, it's young population. In my country, 75% of the population is below the age of 25 years old. And it's almost like that all over um, um, Sub-Saharan Africa. So, but the reason why this um, continent uh, and Sub-Saharan Africa is, uh, you know, poorest region on earth is because it happens to also be the most over-regulated region in the world. There mm. you go. Mm-hmm. We are poor because we lack economic freedom. This is a freedom that no one thought about. And then people say, how did you get there? And I tell them, I take you all the way back to the, 19, to the mid-1940s. Especially there is this one um, event that happened in Manchester, UK in 1945. We call it, it's the fifth Pan-African Congress. At that meeting, this was their last meeting before the independences in Africa that started taking place in the late 50s and onto the 60s. Ghana going first in 1957. My country was much later in um, you know, April of, uh, 1960. But what you had there were all these liberators of the African nations. So remember, we're in 1945. You have to put yourself back into the grander scheme of things. What is happening in 1945 in the world at that point? What were we in? What was going on? Well, what is going on is you had, um, you know, Gandhi who was making some really good inroads with, um, you know, um, emancipating uh, uh, India from um, Great Britain. Um, you know, it would happen officially later, a couple of years later in 1947. But what you had happening back then is like there was, um, this, um, this, uh, this, this wave of um, hope for freedom, you know, if Gandhi uh, was making such, um, you know, inroads, um, being the largest colonized country in the world, 
And yet it looks like they were gonna win for the emancipation from the largest um, colonizer in the world, Great Britain back then. You can only imagine like the other colonies all around and how they were starting to be like, wow, this is possible, we can do this. You know, so imagine yourself, put yourself in the shoes, the shoes of, uh, you know, when they went to that meeting, you had uh, um, Blaise Diagne, he was the one from my country. You had uh, Jomo Kenyatta from Kenya. You had Julius Nyerere from Tanzania. You had, um, you know, Bandia from Malawi. All of those people were there. These were the, the fighters for the African liberation, right? And, but the sad, 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 sad thing is, they all have been co-opted by socialist, by Marxist socialist values. Mm. So that's, those are the ideologies that they had hang on to. And how we got to that is because, again, we're in 1945. Back then, what you had, the free market ideology was almost all but dead. It was a tiny group of people. No, I think it's Rockford who at some point said, or somebody like that said, at some point, you could fit all of us libertarian <laughs> or, you know, free market tier people into a no. phone book, into yeah. a phone book. We, come, we came from so far away. There, there was a point um, in, in Mises' journey. I can't recall if it was World War One or World War Two. Mises... Oh, man, I'm not sure if, if it, I don't, I'm not sure That's which war it was, but he was the on the front lines of the war, and he was basically the only libertarian guy left in the world. So it got that close, right? Like, had we lost him, you may yeah. not, you may not have had human action. You would not have had Rothbard. Absolutely. You may even not even had Bitcoin, that. right? Had that happened, so. Of course not. All of all of that is a ramification. So, but the way even them got to embrace that ideology is because you have to again put yourself back in a contextual, uh, in, in a historical context. For the longest time, it was um, the Marxist, it was the socialists, uh, the Marxist socialists that were in a way fighting against, um, you know, um, against uh, racial. Uh, inequality and um, you know racial rights they were fighting for that mm -hmm. and so they in a time that it was not it was the world was not like that it was you know this was a fight for the longest time they are the ones who were on the on the front of that type of fight before it started to becoming more acceptable even Churchill you know by um in by the end of the war World War II 45 he was still very um friendly to um colonization you know what I mean mm -hmm. so so this is where so at that point you had um you were at the height of uh, this great ideological battle on one end represented by the West and what they were fighting what they were representing was um what they were they were representing themselves to be uh, standing for was freedom and um, and this um, what do you call it uh, the economic system that they were using was capitalism uh, facing us straight on with um, primarily the Eastern Bloc those guys promoting various forms of statism and uh, you know so that's what you had um, most people back then most intellectuals everyone had already chosen the camp of um, Marxist socialism and so of course so these guys were coming at at that time and so on one end you have well these westerners who are what who are the ones who also happen to have enslaved us whatever they're going to stand for we're going to be against uh -huh. included and we're going to side with the other side especially given that they're the ones who have been fighting for racial justice uh-huh uh -huh. right. this is where we made the fatal um, you know, we went to bed with um, the wrong fellows. Right. 
and we threw the baby out with the bathwater. And when we did that, we did not even remember who pre-colonial Africans were. Because you see, for so many people, when they think about the story of Africa, they think it starts in their minds, me included at first, it starts in their minds with slavery, moving into colonialism, then the independences, and we're back to present day. But no one, but most of us don't remember that before the white man ever set foot on the continent, there were people on that place. Mm. And they were just, you know, running their lives. And it is documented through the work of people like uh, Professor George Ayite, Ghanaian economist. He had this fabulous TED talk called um, Cheetah versus Hippos. And it is documented that um, African, in pre-colonial Africa, we were free marketeers, free enterprise people, that actually socialism is colonialism in the sense that it's an imported ideology. Yes, is, yes. It's not to be African than to be socialist. And there was a lot of wealth created on the African continent as a result of that free market capitalism. Back then, absolutely. No. Back mm -hmm. then, we had some wonderful empires like the Malian Empire with Timbuktu still being like big deal today. I mean, there was some stuff going on in the continent, but of course we got derailed with slavery, then colonialism. But this idea that... Um, uh, and so then you had all of this is completed, even to today's Africa. So many Africans tend to want to be like, well, we're naturally associated. Well, that goes back to um, Julius Nyerere, who has written this, um, you know, um, um, it's uh, Ujama. And so what that is all about, um, it's, uh, it's this concept that basically what he was trying to create was this socialist um, utopia, um, supposedly based on uh, this concept of Ubuntu. Ubuntu means I am because we are. So you can see the collectivism in there. And oftentimes I tell them, mm. you forget the I uh, leading to the we. A we is made of, <laughs> is made right, of right. eyes, right? Individual and, first. <laughs> exactly. So, so, but there, what he totally misunderstood um, is something that uh, Kenyatta would actually talk about in one of his books at some point in Mount, Facing Mount Kenya. It's this fact that... Um, Africans, we, we, we practice private welfare among ourselves, right? But the way we make our money, especially, um, you know, is very much based on the markets and women traditionally dominated the markets and to this day mm -hmm. they do. So now you get to see how all of this happened. How did we go from our pre-colonial forefathers who were practicing the free markets and that we were having some of the most sophisticated trade routes in the world and we were going on with our lives. Was everything perfect? Absolutely not, no. Eventually you would get, you would get to just evolve with time like everywhere else it happens. But for our time, we were doing very well. Thank you very much. We had in great um, Zimbabwe, this amazing you know like structures are um you had these amazing structures um architectural structures that made a stone in circular shapes and everybody would agree that whoever did this at that time was very much at the cutting edge of engineering very much at the cutting edge of craftsmanship this and it was so advanced but yes when the white people showed up they said there is no way that black people could do this but indeed we had done that so you see that's a pre-colonial africa we're talking about the world doesn't know about but people like me and george me it's thanks to george but i started digging there you know but um right. so so that's how we got to where we are and so this is how we discovered that um we went to bed with the wrong people adopting the social ideology so this is how fast forward 
uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, as the independences are starting to happen all over Sub-Saharan Africa, well, all the new presidents, the freshly new presidents of all of these African countries, Sub-Saharan African countries, have presidents that are socialist mm. or communist. And it yeah. has, and, and that's how, and that's why we are where we are today. <laughs> In my yeah. country, you have something called Robert, I'm going to tell you this and I'll shut up, I promise. You have something called the Agency for Market Regulation. Do you want to cry? We have something like that to this day. <laughs> that, that, I mean, yeah, that says it all right there that the Agency for Market Regulation, that is the opposite of what you want, right? You want the market. My forefathers would have turned in their graves if they heard something like that. Right, this place right. where, you know, you had the tribes that were the ultimate form of decentralization that we talk about today. Mm -hmm. And this is why, by the way, I'm such a big proponent. I, I, am, I, am, I don't apologize for being a maxi. For me, um, mm -hmm. Bitcoin pretty much is it. And um, I just love, um, for us, you guys in the West bicker about, oh, Bitcoin, is it just like speculative? What is this for? What are we, where, where do you think you did it? Well, when you live in um, countries where the, dis the, the, dysfunction the dysfunctionality of your financial systems are so glaring in your face, mm -hmm. we don't ask twice. There's a reason why in Nigeria, you know, um, I think it's one third, I think it is. Is it one third? Yeah, it's one third of the young, young Nigerians have used crypto. Mm. Wow. Okay. And so this is also where I try to tell my fellow Bitcoin people, stop making these arguments in the West. Right. Look to the, developing, to the developing world, especially Africa. By 2050, Robert, every one person out of four walking this earth will be African. Right. Wow. And guess what? We are the ones who are adopting Bitcoin faster than you guys because you guys are too spoiled. You're frankly too spoiled. And I don't blame you because, right. you know, for now, we have this illusion of functioning um, financial institutions. So you see, there's so much noise, but they don't get the signal. We get the signal. Right. The pain, right? The pain, the pain is go. the signal. The pain, I say there this often go. on the show, that pain is information. So, yes. and maybe this relates yes. to the achievement of prosperity often making people complacent right they're not they're not in touch enough with reality or there's or there's enough of a enough of an economic buffer perhaps between themselves and the world that they don't immediately discern the value proposition of something like bitcoin but if you're living in a world where you don't have that or you've lived through a hyperinflation or you've lived through you know excessive capital controls or any government oppression whatsoever you know and understand Bitcoin instantly, right? You, they don't even instantly. need education because they've they've felt it, they've lived it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you, one more thing I want to tell you. Um, yes. In my country, for example, <laughs> this friend of mine was joking the other day because you know we we talk about these things, right? And he's like, "Yeah, my God, you you want to hear something bad?" I'm like, "Yeah, how bad can it be?" And he's like, "You know." Um, this person, he got the secret services, the equivalency of the secret services show up at his house because he sent uh, three times $50 outside of the country. $50. Yeah. So do you see the level of controls? You and if you think through that too, right? So they sent service agents to his house, presumably to reprimand him for sending $50. Well, yeah, assuming you those guys' salaries are being paid, right? From taxation. You know, so but, 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 but Robert, talk to yourself about this thing. 
what I think Americans don't understand this. You see, when you need to pay me, you in America, you need to pay somebody somewhere. You can send the money to France, you can do all of this, no questions asked. But us, if we want to send money outside of a country, we have to say why, what are we right. doing? They don't want any currencies to leave the, country, right. the nation. Supposedly, they want to make sure that they keep all the, you know, otherwise they're afraid of uh, evasion. Of So you have that. And then sometimes you even go to your ATM. Three times already in the past year, it happened to me. I go to ATMs. Um, I take out money. It, it says I got my money. I didn't get it. And to this day, I still don't have any response from the branches. <laughs> I, I think people it's have criminal. no idea what dealing with here. Exactly. Or yeah. in my country, um, you have to apply for some uh, uh, some, some reserves um, uh, 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 um, reserves uh, rights. So if you're for if I think it's three thousand, but it's changed over time. For let's say somebody needs to pay you three thousand dollars, you need to pay somebody else three thousand dollars. Then you have to go explain why this is happening. So start to imagine the, how cumbersome everything becomes. And, how do you want to do business like that? Right. It's like, like you said early on about the shower or starting a business. Right. The point of economics is to make these things very simple to accomplish, fast, easy, cheap. Right. We, that we can solve problems fast, easy, cheap. But when you superimpose this layer of regulation on top of it, it's uneconomic. Right. It's doing the opposite of what the market is trying to do. So, the, and this is why we talk about this so much is that it seems to me, and I understand that my views might be considered a bit radical libertarian, but everything the government does is parasitic on the free market. It's inhibiting the wealth creation of the free market. And Mises makes this point. He says, all government action is a misallocation of capital. So when I say this to people, you know, they lose their mind. They're like, no, you need the government for this and that and the other thing. But I don't see any problem in the world that we can't solve with consensual exchange. Yeah. So I don't see where you could ever justify the theft of government to solve a problem that the market cannot solve. No, uh, no. And, and you know, it, it is, it's, it's horrible. And then, you know, once I told somebody, I said at the end of the day for me, the free market, um, free market and free market capitalism in my mind is the system that is most respectful of human nature. Exactly. Period. Yeah. Period. It's the one that's most respectful of human nature, um, doesn't work against us, and actually done right. Um, you know, helps us get the best out of us. Does it sometimes not go this way? Yeah, but is the uh, are the upside um, you know worth it? Surely. So, so I don't know. So for me. You guys, while, while everybody's fighting about Bitcoin, no Bitcoin, and uh, yeah, it's uh, speculative or it's, um, you know, it, it's a scam. Us, we're like, come to Africa maybe and you'll, you'll see right away <laughs> right. Right. what we're talking about. So, so this is a plea of mine, uh, Robert, by the way, where oftentimes I feel like um, it, it would be so, it would be so cool, actually, if a Bitcoin community really, especially the Western Bitcoin community, um, kind of shifted its gears, and instead of this um, un unconstructive arguments that we're doing, that we're having in the West, can we use that energy and direct it towards um, places like Africa? You know, I know that um, Bitcoin uh, investment in uh, um, in um, in um, 
was it Bitcoin only or was it crypto in general? I'm not so sure, but it went up 11x the last year in Africa. Real, oh, like the volume, the yeah, investment volume. volume. Yeah. So a part of me is always here to say, we have always a choice in life. Do we want to spend all of our time arguing with people who are too spoiled to, to, um, to see the signal, to um, differentiate the signal from the noise? Or do we want to go and build with those who have already um, made the discernment between the noise and the signal? For me, it's always a calculation that I feel like I have to make. Mm. And I feel like right now, lots of energy, time, and resources is being spent on arguments that where if you just target it towards people who are like, you, you don't even have to explain to me. I don't even need to understand how it works, but the fact that it works mm-hmm. is all I need. Let's right. go. Yeah. So um, there's something to do there. I don't know. And um, yes, I know that we bring we bring up um, Bitcoin from the standpoint of uh, especially human rights, you know, like how to help uh, the activists and uh, preserve people's human rights, which is super important. Do not take me wrong. But at the same time, um, I do think that uh, there is a big case to be made for um, can we just simply um, liberate hundreds of millions of people uh, from dysfunctional um, what do you call it from dysfunctional financial institution? Yes, then- yeah, from the fiat currency complex, right? The central yes. banking system. I, I feel your energy on that, and I've tried. You know, I wrote this piece a while ago, and I'll share it with you when we get off here. Titled "Masters and Slaves of Money," and I actually open with a little bit of history of uh, money in Africa, where you know Africans use glass beads as currency for a long time. And that's back when they sort of just naturally adopted free market principles as people tend to do when left alone. And it was when Europeans arrived, I think this was in the 16th century, and they saw that these glass beads are being used as currency and realized that, hey, we have really sophisticated glass making tech back in Europe, so we can counterfeit these beads at scale, basically. And so that was a mechanism that was used by Europeans to confiscate and usurp African wealth. So right. this is one angle, like there's a lot of angles on money and property and what supports the free market. But if you could just understand that, not you, but if people could understand that counterfeiting currency is used as a mechanism to steal wealth, then perhaps that would properly frame the value proposition of a money that cannot be counterfeited like Bitcoin. That's essentially what it is, right? It's uninflatable, which is to say it's uncounterfeitable. That's right. And so how how much could we have avoided in that little vignette, it led to the middle passage, the transatlantic slave trade, all of these horrible things started with that counterfeiting of currency. So if we could understand it's not about demonizing like this group of people or that group of people. It's what are the incentives that these groups of people are inhabiting? Because the incentives determine the outcome. So if we can shift people out of a system where currency is counterfeited at scale, like we're living in today, right? That's what the central bank is doing. It's just a legalized currency counterfeiting operation and shift to a world that that's just not an option. It's not an option to take anymore. You can't steal from people by printing money that we could prevent the horrific sagas like we saw in the transatlantic slave trade, and maybe not prevent, I'm not trying to be an absolutist utopian here, but man, you could take a lot of wind out of the cells of something like that. 
And go so, closer, go closer. Vietnam War, Afghan yes. War. I don't. Right. I. I really believe that none of them would have lasted as long as they lasted Absolutely. if we had to rely on real money. Real money, yes. right? It's here. All of a sudden, like, oh, gee, oh, I don't. I don't have any money, so I'm gonna have to find a way to fold this war uh, or to, you know, get out of it with. Uh, but we would not have stayed in this. So this is why sometimes for me, when people are like, well, Bitcoin and the energy use, and this is immoral. I'm like, which one is more immoral? This um, energy use, but by the way, is not so high. Right. Or, or war. <laughs> how do you feel compared to wars and people being killed? Out of, how, I mean, really, can we go there for a second? Uh, of course. You know? it, and, I, that exact point, I love to, to zero in on this because I think First of all, World War One, World War Two, both fiat currency increased the scale and duration of those conflicts, right? Without counterfeiting money, they would not have lasted as long or been as destructive. But even more recently, if we look at the US war on terror, which is not really a war, it's just an imperialistic campaign. I think the numbers came out to $80,000 per US household is how much it costs to fund the 20-year ish war on terror. Now, how big of a difference would it have, have been if that money could not have been printed and instead each US household was presented with a bill for $80,000 saying, hey, we're blowing people up on the other side of the planet. Your, your share of the bill is $80,000. You know, Please send the check by April 15th. <laughs> like People would go crazy. They would resist. They would push back. There would be all of, all of this uh, resistance, frankly. But instead, if you can just print the currency, inflate the prices of goods and services, and then what do they do now? We blame inflation on Putin. We blame inflation on the gas station. We blame inflation on the capitalist. And it's just the state uh, constantly obfuscating economic reality to perpetrate these horrible things over and over and over again. And so that's why I'm so, I mean, and I'm glad you're passionate about it. And there's people like you out there doing this, but it's just a matter of education. It's like just understanding what this technology money is and how it actually works and how the game is actually being played can lead you to this awakening of like, oh, well, maybe I do need money that can't be counterfeited. And there's right. only one option and that's Bitcoin. So Bitcoin's right. a big deal. <laughs> that's right. Absolutely. No, no, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. So, um, so no, so this is why I have become, um, to me, it's important to defend Bitcoin. I am seeing uh, Bitcoin being as much under attack in the, in the West as capitalism is, and in a way, maybe they're linked. And um, someone like me, I absolutely cannot afford for um, that attack to succeed, because if it does, it will mean suffering, more wars, and um, death, death. And so I, I just I just can't, so I, I, I the reason why I was excited to come and talk with you today is because at this point, I am totally very much in a crusade. The crusade is on and um, we've got to defend these principles with everything that we've got. We're not as far as we think. At the end of the day, there is a silent, reasonable majority in the middle that given the evidence totally is on board. Um, we just cannot afford the crazy you know, extreme voices on both sides to hijack the, um, the, the rhetoric. We mm -hmm. just simply can't. And so there's going to be some of us who have to muster up the courage and the intellectual integrity 
to say out loud what might not be so popular in time in these times and days. But I, for me, these this, these have to win. These principles have to win. There's too much at stake. There's too much, mm. Um, mm. and that's it. And if I have to go down, I'll go down that way. But um, <laughs> there's just too much at stake. Just Something worth stake. fighting for, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Amen to that. Well, look, I feel again, your story is just so compelling. And I think I got the chill bumps seven or eight times during this conversation. So we got, I really thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing your story. And uh, I'm glad to have people like you in this world fighting for freedom because we've kind of got one big shot here and we can't miss, right? No. So. Mm -mm. No, we can't. And we won't. We won't. And we won't. We won't because we can't. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Could you please uh, let my audience know where they could find out more about you or your work? Yeah. So basically, um, best is um, magatwade.com. So M-A-G-A-T-T-E, uh, wade.com. And also, uh, if you want to support what we're doing in Africa, because I've always said, we don't want Africa, you know, us Africans, we don't need anybody's pity or anything like that. We just need to, um, you know, be, be able to trade with one another. So uh, African, buy African products made in Africa by Africans, but what Skinny Skin is, it's a really cool palm. And so you can find us at skinnyskin.com. And um, that's actually the best way to, you know, to be, uh, to be part of uh, the solution. So those are the best ways to find me. And on those, you'll find everything we're doing. I did not uh, bring up a subject which had to do with, uh, the, this concept of startup cities we're working on quickly the best way to think about these cities is you know a given plot of land you realize that uh, the business laws that uh, rule it because we talked about regulations and uh, the laws um, being an operating software and depending on which operating software you get to run on you're going to you're going to be poor or you're going to be rich right prosperous so it turns out most african nations are running on a terrible software as we just talked about um, in this conversation so what some of us are doing is to say if we go to one of these poor countries and we go to an, a rather inhabited, in, uh, non-habited uh, part of it, the size of 110 acres like Dubai, and there we say the business, the, the laws that are gonna, that are gonna be, um, you know, that this, this piece of land is gonna be subjected to when it comes to business, we're gonna put, um, we're gonna put it um, based on the common law rather than all this civil law that we're seeing in so many African nations, mine included, um, and common law with on top of that customary African law, depend, which doesn't matter which African country you're in, take the customary laws of that particular country, that particular place, uh, you mix up the whole thing with the common law. You start to have something very interesting. Botswana is a really great example. So some of us are working on replicating these things. And in cities like that, that will have their own law and governance, we then uh, use Bitcoin as our uh, financial and monetary um, tool. So we think that we start like this, we get to completely leapfrog the whole thing. We leapfrog the whole thing. And we get some of these cities going in Africa. Africa eventually, um, city after city, country after country is totally going to leapfrog within, within this um, generation. And then uh, far away from there, the Americans who did not want to hear anything that you're saying today are going to start to pay attention and be like, wait a second, uh, really? And so for me, that's that's how I intend to fight the battle. You know, we can we can be very bold about this. Uh, we know it works. It's been done before. Singapore is a version of it. Hong Kong is a version of it. Um, Dubai, most recently, the financial international center. 
I mean, there are so many reasons for people to be, um, to wake up every day feeling so pumped and feeling so hopeful. I know that we are feeling very, very scared in the US right now. I hear people every day waking up in despair, waking up, they feel like there's no hope. They feel like it's all going down the toilet. I'm here to tell everybody, we have never been in a better position than now. I mean, this is this is a time we have the tools, let's organize and, and, and it's just, it's just there's so much to do and I'm just so excited. So everyone who's in, interested in some of these, there are some of them going on, uh, you know, in Honduras now, uh, there's some going on in Africa. Um, it's just, I mean, there's tons to do. So anybody who wants to play a role in this, just reach out to me, um, you know, magatweight.com and uh, we will find ways to plug everybody. Um, there's a lot of work to do, but it's, it's exciting. And then, um, you know, we're building the future right now. And it's a, it's a future where we're not going to take compromises. We don't, it's, uh, I don't know how to tell you this, but yeah, I, I um, you know, it's, 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 um, it's, uh, it's intoxicating uh. when you can have a vision, but that vision is very well, you have a plan and the plan has been, you know, validated so many times in so many different places that, you know, it was just not by chance or anything like that. So I just so want so many people to see that. And so, so, so yeah, so there's so much to do. Beautifully said, beautifully said, so much work to do, but it's a good thing we like to hustle. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh my God, thank you so much. Honestly, this was a great conversation and I look forward to the next one. Me too, me too. Thanks, Robert. Thank you.